I decided to reflect upon the three verses here at the end of 52, so not just verse 13, we'll go through verse 15. The end of Isaiah 52 is actually the introduction to the four stanzas of Isaiah 53. So here we are dealing with a prophecy that, speaking of the suffering servant, Jesus himself and the redemption accomplished on on the cross in his life and death and resurrection. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father and gracious God, we come before you. We ask that you would bless us as we look to your word. We ask that you, by your spirit, would speak mightily and powerfully as we reflect upon all of these things. We ask that what is spoken of your word would be true that you would cleanse your servant of anything sinful, anything displeasing to you. We ask that you would build up your church and your kingdom. We ask that you would come and attend to us all of the needs that we have. We have many sick and afflicted, many who could not join us today for those reasons. We ask that you would be with them, bless them, help those who are in recovery, help those who are receiving treatment, help those who are shut in, help those who feel Uh, that they ought to stay away because of the pandemic. We pray that you would protect us and keep us safe. Protect them as well. Lift them up. Give them a Sabbath day's blessing. We pray for uh, our world and the gospel that continues to go forth. We pray that you would build up your church and call many to yourself. Raise up good and faithful ministers. Place them in churches which need them. We pray, O Father, uh, for our families, and you would protect us, protect our marriages and relationships between parents and children. We ask that you would guide the leadership of our church. We ask that you would bind us all together in love and harmony, just like the love which you have shown us. And Father, we do pray and ask that you would be with all of those who are grieving now, as we have lost so many of our members recently. And we know that this is a combination of pain and sorrow, but also rejoicing. And so we ask that you would comfort us in the midst of our grief and our sorrow, as we remember brothers and sisters who are no longer in our midst, but have joined the church triumphant. And may you keep us all until that day when you call us home. Keep us looking to Christ, abiding in him, walking by the Spirit, and living for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen. So if you've been paying attention this morning, a a theme that uh, makes up really a a large part of the Christian life, of course, is sorrow over sin. 
And it's, it's sorrow over sin that uh, becomes even more real and, and ever-present to us when we consider not only the holiness of God and our sin, but also the, the death of Christ and the glorious one, the, the, the maker, as we sang in Alas and Did My Savior Breathe, the Christ, the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Who am I that the Lord of glory would die for me? A song uh, that I love so much, it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. But I think one of the things that, uh, that we, we come up to in the Christian life is when we have this godly sorrow, this anguish over our sin, this shame over our sin, it can at times become difficult to know how to rejoice at the foot of the cross. How do you rejoice? And that's something I want to think about today, that while we hold on to that sorrow, while we hold on to that anguish and that shame of Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, going to Calvary for me, for us, that nevertheless we can rejoice. And the end of of Isaiah 52 helps us to do that. Because it shows very clearly the suffering of the, the servant. And yet gives us things over which we ought to rejoice and marvel at that God showed in his Son. So we rejoice in the wisdom of Christ. We rejoice in the contrast that we see between the the depth to which he went in suffering and the height to which he rises in his exaltation. And we rejoice at the glory that he So those are the things we're going to think about today. Rejoicing in the wisdom of Christ, the contrast of suffering and glory, and then his exaltation. Isaiah 52, 13 begins by saying this, My servant shall act wisely. My servant shall act wisely. That word wisely can be translated wisdom or prudence which in many ways highlight the same sorts of things oftentimes to act prudently is to act in wisdom but basically what it means is this is that the suffering servant will use the best means to obtain the highest ends whatever road the servant walks in his earthly ministry and his living and his dying That will be the best road to obtain the highest exaltation, the highest place of glory. And so that means that as we consider the saving work of Jesus Christ, that we should understand that the road he walked was an exercise of wisdom. And that begins to help us to see one of the ways that we rejoice at the cross and in the cross. That even though, yes, we feel shame and guilt over our sin, we nevertheless see the glory of the wisdom of God's plan. Something that we see in Scripture, the exaltation that Christ receives is something that the Father gives to him in light of the cross. Now, we have to understand, of course, God never changes. God never uh, receives anything he doesn't already have. And yet the Bible describes Christ's exaltation is something given in light of the cross. So Philippians chapter 2, of course, the very famous Christ hymn there. He was in the form of God. Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself all the way to becoming obedient to the point 
of death. And then verse 9 says, therefore, in other words, in light of that, in in light of the humbling of Christ, in, in light of his willingness to take on the form of a servant, in light of his willingness to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him because of the cross, because of his humiliation. God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. The exaltation he receives from the Father is in light of the road that he walked. Not only this, but the worship that Christ receives and is receiving now and will receive into eternity will be a worship that is centered around his work on Calvary. So when we have glimpses of heaven and heavenly worship, I've had many opportunities to think about this with many of the funerals that we've done in recent weeks. But heavenly worship, as it's pictured in Revelation, is usually focused on the cross. So Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the Father gives the Son glorious exaltation in light of the cross, and His people worship Him with all of their hearts in light of all that He has done in redemption. How do we put that together? Because God is not more glorious now than He always has been. He never receives something that that changes Him or changes something about His nature. And here's one of the ways that we can think about it. It's that at the cross of Christ, God was putting on display the depth of the grace that was already in him. And so think with me for, uh, go back to Genesis chapter 22. And God commands Abraham to take Isaac up onto the mountain. He says, sacrifice your son there. And of course, at the very uh, last moment, God stops the arm of Abraham, says, Do not do it, do not harm the boy, do not touch him, for I will provide a sacrifice. Now, of course, we know that there was a ram caught in the thicket that Abraham sacrificed. But ultimately, the reason why Abraham did not have to go through and give his son was because the father had already purposed to give his only begotten son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely with himself graciously give us all things. And so at that very moment in Genesis 22, all of the grace that would send Jesus Christ to the cross was already present in God. And all of the love that God the Son had to go to the cross was already there. And so what we see at the cross is that God puts on display who he always has been. And thus, as all of his people worship him and give him praise and adoration, we're worshiping him for what he manifested to us. We are naming the glory that already was and already is and always will be. We're saying this is how glorious God is because how deep and how wide and how vast is the love of God and the grace of Christ and his work. You see, the worship that will go on forever in heaven will never forget that day at Calvary. We read that the former things will not be remembered And certainly that means the pain, the trials, the challenges of this life, all that weighs us down. But we will always be praising Jesus for his work of redemption. That's something that will never, that will never pass away, that we always 
will remember. And so what we see in all of this is the wisdom of God. And even as we feel that, that shame and guilt and sadness over our sin, we rejoice to see the wisdom of God and, and the plan of redemption. And thus we can be filled with joy even as we think of the suffering of our Savior. And then secondly, the second idea I'd like for us to think about is the, the contrast that shuts the mouths of kings. The contrast that shuts the mouths of kings. Another thing that, that magnifies our, our sadness and our shame over our sin is the human suffering of Jesus. So we read about it in Isaiah 52. We read about it in John chapter 19. The beatings, the floggings, the way that Jesus becomes an object of hatred and disdain by the crowds, people spitting on him and hurling insults at him. This is our king. And so it's right that we read these accounts with a degree of shock and horror and sadness. There's a lot of things in this world that uh, break your heart. A lot of things that are uh, terrible and make you feel sad about the reality of sin and suffering. But there has never been any suffering like there was that day when Jesus was crucified. There's never been one so innocent and so pure. There's never been one who has suffered for the exact opposite of all that he had done. In verse 14 of Isaiah 52, we read that many were appalled at him. And and I think there's two things going on there. That they're filled with this hatred and disdain for the servant. But then, because of he is so marred and maimed, his appearance, he doesn't even look anymore like a man. And so it makes it easy for those who hate him to despise him. So it shows how great his sufferings were. That's what the prophet is saying here. He will suffer in such a way that he will be barely recognizable as a man. And that becomes, of course, a source of anguish for us. But how we can rejoice in the low point of his suffering is to see his exaltation. And that is exactly what Isaiah does at this very point. For the one who appears to human eyes as the farthest thing from pure, and in, that, in those moments, he's marred and he's maimed, he becomes an object of disdain and hatred. The one who looks the farthest thing from, from pure will be the one who sprinkles many nations, it says. He will be a source of purity, of washing, of forgiveness for the world. In other words, something so grotesque in those moments, in his suffering. But the result is holiness and purity, even purity before God. He will sprinkle the nations, that that image of sprinkling as purifying, that God purifies us with the sprinkling of pure water, just like we see in baptism. In that way, we look to uh, the intense suffering of our Lord and confess that at the very time that we abhor what he went through, at the very time that, that we are filled with shock as to what God the Son did for us, we confess that we need that suffering. We need his wounds. We, we tread carefully, but we can even say things like, we love the fact that he suffered. We love his blood. 
which flowed to free us from sin. We love his wounds because by his wounds we are healed. Without them we have no hope. It's through this that Isaiah the prophet says, even kings will stand in awe of him. And why is that? It's because of the contrast, isn't it? Because of the the, the terrible nature of his sufferings, followed by how high and exalted he becomes in light of that suffering. In other words, kings will be so awed by Jesus that they have nothing to say. Those with the most power on earth will realize one day, and, and many already have, but they will realize one day that this one has a power unlike any other. You can, you can feel Pilate's uneasiness as John is telling the account in the Gospel of John. All of a sudden, he's, he's worried because if Jesus isn't lying, then he is one who has a power greater than his. And, and Pilate is confused. What, uh, don't you understand that I can free you? Jesus said, you would have no power unless it were granted to you from above. So there will come a day when all the kings of the earth will willingly admit that their power was a mere myth compared to the power of Jesus. It speaks to the miraculous nature of his reign, that kings will bow down, their their mouths will stop. What it means there is that they will be in awe of him. It's the contrast because you see the low point of his suffering and the height of his exaltation. Verse 13 repeats it three times. He will be raised, he will be lifted up, he will be exalted. Some people have seen in there the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the session of Christ, which is interesting. That may be what's going on there in verse 13. But really what it's doing, it's throwing a lot of terms in order to emphasize he will be high and lifted up and so high and so lifted up. Think about how low Jesus stooped to be crucified on a cross. One historian puts it this way, speaking of the resurrection, that it was so bad that many of the Romans would be embarrassed. It's something you wouldn't talk about in polite company. He says, crucifixion in the opinion of Roman intellectuals was not a punishment just like any other. It was one peculiarly suited to slaves. Some deaths were so vile, so squalid, that it was best to draw a veil across them entirely. And then he says this, But that the Son of God, born of a woman, and sentenced to the death of a slave, had perished unrecognized by his judges, was a reflection fit to give pause to even the proudest king. And it has done just that. One king in particular who noticed this in Jesus Christ, was Napoleon. He said this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. Napoleon knew about empires. He knew what it meant to have thousands at his beck and call, and yet he recognized that if the Lord of glory appeared and summoned men from his army, surely all of them would drop their swords and their shields and they would go to the Lord. A contrast that shuts the mouths of kings, that one with true power, power beyond earthly power, would go to a point so low and then would be exalted so high so that he might defeat death. Because if you see and you realize and you understand what Jesus is doing, 
That he is doing this so as to grant his people eternal life. You can do nothing but stand in awe of how low he went and how high he was exalted and is exalted. This is something that kings, earthly kings, do not do. To die in the stead of sinners. So a couple things, a couple points of application as we come now to the table. First is this, be in awe of how exalted Christ is. Be in awe of his exaltation. As we said in verse 13, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. It would be only from an exaltation like Christ's that we could receive and experience the blessing of redemption. So earlier in Isaiah 52, the prophet says, Burst into songs of joy, for the Lord has comforted his people. The Lord will will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. A salvation so great could only come from an exaltation so high. So rejoice in that, even in the midst of being ashamed of your failings and your stumblings. Rejoice of the height of Christ's exaltation. He walked a road of wisdom so as to be so highly exalted. Secondly, if Christ was appointed for glory, as we read in verse 13, then so are all who are in him. He was appointed for glory. My servant shall be exalted. And thus all those who are found in him, all those who abide in him, will receive glory as well. Now it will not be our name, sung throughout the annals of eternity. It will not be our Our work that will be exalted, it will be Christ's. And yet, nevertheless, we are called co-heirs with Christ if we are found in him. We rejoice on days like this where we gather around the table that those who are in Christ have these great and wonderful promises. Appointed for glory, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Romans 8, the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, what the Son receives, all who know Him and are in Him will receive. And then thirdly, so if Christ was appointed for glory, then so are all who are in Him. And then thirdly, if Christ had to suffer before glory, then joyfully, so can we. If He was exercising wisdom, to walk this road, and Hebrews chapter 12 says that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And then it says this in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus had to suffer before glory. And so joyfully, then so can we. Just as that was a, an exercise of wisdom for Christ, the ultimate wisdom that you can exercise in this life is to embrace suffering before glory. Which is exactly what we are called to do in Scripture. Romans 8 again. We are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If Jesus walked this road, 
than we can in our own imperfect way. It doesn't save us, but we are called to walk that road of suffering before glory, and we can do so joyfully as we see the wisdom of Christ, as we see the contrast of the depth of his sufferings and the height of his exaltation, as we give him praise for the one who is high and lifted up. Well, these things teach us certain ways while holding on to the, the, the shame of our sin and thinking about the suffering of Christ and that can fill your heart with anguish. Nevertheless, we can rejoice at the foot of the cross for the wisdom of God in Christ. For he is high and lifted up and he has received a name above every other name. So be filled with that anguish, sorrow over your sin, but rejoice. Rejoice at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask then that you would bless us as we gather around the table of the Lord. Feed us heavenly food as we eat in faith and as we do this by the power of the Spirit. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.